What's going on guys? Welcome back to Consuming Crime with Jen and Jules. It is Jules here. If you are at the $12 level on the Patreon, you can already tell that I'm having a little bit of technical difficulties with the uh, arm mic, or the arm for the mic, whatever you call it, where I'm having to hold it up, and it's kind of annoying, but I'm going to keep that to a minimum, especially even if you are just listening, it, you can hear when the arm moves, so... Uh, I'll do my best to keep that to a minimum. But anyway, make sure you give us five stars wherever you're listening, and if you have not already, be sure to check out the Patreon. The $5 level gets you two additional episodes a month, so you get six total. The $7 level gets you the bonus episodes plus our regular episodes ad-free, and the $12 level gets you all of that, plus not only can you listen to me tell the story, you can watch me tell the story. So without further ado, let's get into today's case. We have covered this series before on the podcast, The Confession Tapes on Netflix, and this is the second time we're covering it, if you don't include the fact that the first one was a part one and a part two. This one goes over a man by the name of Kenneth Osborne, and he is the murderer slash guy that was framed. And I don't know how you guys feel out there about the confessions or how you feel about people saying they did something when they didn't, Like, why would you say you did it if you had nothing to do with it? Obviously, you're going to prison. But let's go over it. I'm going to play the intro for you guys. It's just going to be the recording of the confession. You would look at Cameron and say, I regret what has happened. And you feel so hard in your heart for that, don't you? You feel so hard for the dead. Holding up the computer with one hand was excruciatingly difficult. <laughs> okay, so as you can see, he's kind of just saying, like, agreeing with the police, which begs the question, like, what led to this, right? So this is a murder that took place in Dacia County in Arkansas. A woman by the name, or 17-year-old girl, by the name of Casey Crowder, she runs out of gas on her way home from Dumas County. She calls her mom to let her know, hey mom, I ran out of gas, I'm going to walk to the nearest Exxon and um, get some gas. So the officers find her car on the side of the road with the emergency lights on, but there is no Casey. It was a small town and everybody was surprised. This is another one of those towns where nothing really happens, so everyone's kind of like, what the hell, there's like a kidnapper on the loose? There were several witnesses, and I want you guys to make note of this when listening to the story. A lot of these people say they saw something or say they didn't see something. So a majority of this case is witness testimony and or the whatever you call that confession. Her body did end up being located. It was a couple of, I want to like a couple miles away from her car. She was laying in a ditch and there was a zip tie wrapped around her neck. You could tell that she struggled, like they must have put the zip tie around her neck to kill her. And what makes me 
but what's like kind of sad about these these the confession tapes is that they don't go into detail about how people are killed they don't really talk much about casey and really you don't get like a time of death you don't get a cause of death all you know is there was a zip tie around her neck so i guess it's safe to assume that asphyxiation is her cause of death really soon after they found the body they arrested daisha county trucker kenneth osborne they're also interviewing this guy um he's a retired sheriff his name is jim snyder i'm just gonna call him sheriff snyder i don't like him but he's still a sheriff so you gotta say that. He's saying, like, this is a small town, but things do happen. Thefts, murders, extortions. It's not uncommon. I was gonna get at something. Oh, like, as to why why they suspected, like, why arrest Kenneth Ors Orsburn? Or Why did I spell it like that? Osburn? Anyway, as to why they arrested him, so they checked at the cameras of a Sonic nearby, where you could see the area that somebody would have passed by had they had something to do with her murder. At 6.42 a.m., they see Kenneth's car passing one way, and at 6.45 a.m., they see his car passing another way. So I'm not sure if they're trying to suggest that he did something in the three-minute period, but she had called her mother at around 5.30. So maybe they're thinking he did something and then went and dumped the body, but then again, was his car the only car that passed between the hours of 5.30 and 6.30 or 7? That's a little... It just sounds like a reach so far. So Kenneth is somebody that was always home on the weekends. His wife passed away in 2005, so just a year before this incident. His daughter took care of his son, so they had two kids together. And she was a lot closer to her mom, but after her mother passed away, she did get closer to her father. So she is another person that's being interviewed, and of course, she is saying her father had nothing to do with it, and more witness testimony, basically. So this is, the, this is what they account for. On August 27, 2006, which was the morning Casey had disappeared, he left with his daughter around 5.40 in the morning to the town and got there at around 6 a.m. They went to have breakfast at Matthew's. She said she had biscuits and gravy, and she remembers that. She also accounts seeing a car on the side of the road, the flashes were flashing, and after that, he took her to work and then went home. Do we know for sure he went home? We don't. But I do believe her when she says he took her to work and that was it. But the time matches as to where he would have been in the area around the time they had yet to find the body. But again, we're not talking about what time did she die. You know, how far into rigor mortis was her body? Was she dead maybe at two in the morning? Was she, you know, did she run out of air at midnight? Was the car there all night? We don't know that. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of assumptions. And I don't know if that's the way the documentary is making it seem. Like they leave out details on purpose, you know, to kind of make the police look bad. I'm not sure, but I have a lot of questions and unfortunately, they don't really get answered, at least not in this documentary. Her car was left on the edge of the city south of where her body was found. And then when police went and looked at the footage, one of the cops saw a white 2002 Chevy Silverado with Arkansas license plates. And they're like, that's Kenneth Osborne's car. Which again, was his car the only car that passed that area? What time did she even die? <laughs> Now we have Patrick Denka, who is the defense attorney for Kenneth. He is another person being interviewed, and he 
is paid to defend Kenneth, so another person that is biased, but we will listen. He brings up the point from 6.42 a.m. to 6.45 a.m. Like, you're gonna say that my client did something in three minutes? They have another woman come up in the interview. Her name is Nancy Dunn. She is a witness, and she is a character. She's actually funny. She, um, I don't, I was, like, dying of laughter at this part, but she was saying that, yeah, I passed by him, and he, um, I waved at him, but he didn't wave back. She seemed, by the way, she seems, like, still butthurt about it years later. She goes, he definitely had somebody in the car, and the producer's like, oh, what color was this person's hair? You know, what, what did this person look like? And she was like, it was a woman with black hair. Like, there was definitely a woman slumped over towards him with, like, charcoal black hair. You guys, if you have seen the picture of Casey, she's blonde. Like, blonde, blonde. Like, you can't mistake her hair for black. So this is, on September 4th, 2006, another audio interrogation. I told you that you're not under arrest, that you can get up and leave any time you see fit. Remember I told you that? Sure, you did. Okay. I want to be able to help. Okay. 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 I'm my daughter. I don't know why I'd be pulling my hair out. Okay. When he came in that first time, he goes down there voluntarily to talk to law enforcement. He offered up his truck. He said you can go in there and take a look at it. They try to find DNA in the truck. They try to find zip ties. It was his community. It affected a victim in his community. I think he wanted to help. And the more he helped, the more he was looked at as a suspect. Tell me why your, your arm's so scratched up. One dollar I got real high for him. You know, bite a hit you. You'll get rough with you if you play with him, brother. You know what I think? I think she scratched your arm down she falls too bad. Well, if she done that, she'd have my skin under her back. You have constantly repeated over and over again the DNA is going to prove that it's done. Well, with the technology we don't get. So that first man that you heard was the voice of his defense attorney when he's talking about how Kenneth came forward and said, you guys can check my car. You guys can see if there's any DNA. You guys can see if I even have zip ties. Just go ahead, look, because this is a girl that went missing in my community and he came forward to try to help them out, it seems. And then they ask him about these markings on his body and he says, you know, he has a dog that if you were too rough with him, he bites you. They do look like bites. They don't really look like, well, I guess they could be scratches. But anyway, he goes on to say that if, because the detective says, I think she scratched you. And he's like, well, if she scratched me, her DNA would be underneath my fingernails or underneath her fingernails. And that's true. But then the detective's like, you know, you keep thinking DNA is going to clear you. Like, this isn't CSI or whatever. Like, you watch too many movies. And it's like, it's, it's not even... And here's the thing, guys, is when you're, when you're defending somebody in a criminal case, physical evidence is important. But so is circumstantial and, you know, witness testimony. All those types of evidence are important. But you can't, you can't go to a jury and say, this person has claw marks. It must be from this person. Like, that's making an assumption. You can't just say that. You have to have something to back it up. AKA, if there's no DNA underneath her fingerprints, then you can't make that assumption, not in a courtroom at least. So the officer starts showing him the little streets that were near Casey's body and there's a phone tower 
it's saying that from 7.04, around that time, is when Casey's phone and his phone are making pings off of the same cell tower. Were those two phones the only two phones making pings? And isn't a ping like a text message? Wouldn't that assume that they're getting texts at the same time? I don't know, I feel like a cell tower gets pings from like 100 people at the same time. So for, again, for them to just assume. And at 7.04, didn't he pass by at 6.45? Wouldn't he have done it before that? Oh my god. This, it might be the documentary's fault, but I just, I have too many questions and it's really, really frustrating going forward without knowing all of these things. The officer says, I think that you saw her. She got a nice shirt on. She ain't got no bra. Your wife died a year ago. You have all these problems. Like, kind of pushing him towards like we think you did it which obviously you're questioning him you gotta think he had something to do with it and they start threatening him they start saying you're gonna get cooked in court the jurors are gonna bury you you're gonna go to a death chamber the prosecution is gonna go for your jugular like all this stuff and like if you knew that all of that was gonna happen and you were so confident that he was gonna get the death penalty why are you still questioning him you know like if you already have enough to where you think he's getting the death penalty why do you still need a confession they're talking as if they have what they need to take him you know but unfortunately he he's not he may not be educated enough in the court system to to know these things so he starts asking once the threats start he starts asking for a lawyer the investigator starts saying Things like, next time we meet, I'll be nice to you at first, but then I'm going to get nasty. So they go, good cop, bad cop. That's how they were playing it. But something very important to note is they're ignoring him, essentially, when they say, I want an attorney. You can't do that. That's a constitutional right, no matter what state you're in. He ends up volunteering his own DNA, figuring that this is all I need to get clear, and he finds out later on that if they want to get you they're gonna get you doesn't matter if your dna doesn't match really quick you guys i am really really excited to introduce you guys to today's sponsor sword and scale this is another true crime podcast i really encourage you guys to listen to they are one of the podcasts that inspired me and jen to start our own podcast so if you cannot get enough of true crime podcasts this is one that we definitely recommend Sword and Scale is the longest standing true crime podcast that combines 911 phone calls, interrogation audio to tell you real life stories that will chill you to the bone. This is the type of podcast you listen to and you feel like you are in the story with the detectives and that's what I love the most about them. They practically invented a podcast genre back in 2014, years before other true crime podcasts became popular. Sword and Scale's host and creator Mike Boudet expertly narrates each and every shocking episode to fully immerse listeners into a carefully crafted real life story that provides that the worst monsters are definitely real. Sometimes it even gets a little scary and spooky with the music that they use and like I said it's one of those podcasts you get indulged in especially if you use both headphones. I know it's kind of weird but if you listen to this one put both headphones in. I swear to you it feels like you're a detective on the case. Sword and Scale is available bi-weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today and leave them a review. That's Sword and Scale, also available at swordandscale.com.
Once you're finished with today's episode, go ahead and check them out. Subscribe to them and uh, give them a listen. Let me know if you guys like them. I really like when you guys comment on our videos and our episodes and let us know how we're doing on our episodes. But I also want to know if you agree that Sword and Scale is super engaging. Remember guys, that's Sword and Scale, proving that the worst monsters are real. And you guys, I don't know if his DNA matches. Again, they don't they're so vague. I, I don't think I'm gonna cover this series anymore because I don't like how many questions I have. So Osborne's family is being interviewed and they think that the cops are covering for somebody else. To which at first I was like, I don't think so. Like, I think they're just being lazy. But later on, I do start to think they might be covering for someone, but we'll get to that point. The detective starts saying that he used drugs and he was scratching his face in the interview, which may be true because he does look like he might use a little bit. I'm not saying that in a mean way. I'm just saying. And the scratches on his arms could be from him picking at his skin. I don't know what drug makes you do that, but I'm pretty sure there is a drug that makes you pick at your skin. And that is what that looks like. Does that mean that he's a killer? No. It makes him look bad, but don't make him a killer. Now his friend is being interviewed and she's saying no. He does not do drugs. Again, another biased opinion, but let's continue. She's saying that he was at her house just two hours after he supposedly would have killed her. They were at a barbecue and he acted normal, like he cooked, he grilled, nothing crazy. He definitely wasn't acting like somebody, like how they act after they kill somebody, but. They place him under arrest and they take his daughter. Like the cops took his daughter, not, I'm sorry, not like kidnap, obviously they didn't kidnap her, but like they asked her to come to the station, she goes to the station, and now she's in the interrogation room. And they took him to a sheriff's house, like to his shed in the backyard, saying, this is the ugly part I was talking about. And that part where the officer says this is the ugly part is in recording. It was recorded him saying that. Sheriff Snyder says it was a calm atmosphere. This is why we took him to the shed, so it would be calmer. Like, where? Where is it relaxing to take somebody to your shed? You are the president of the United States. If you're, if I'm in your shed, I'm either gonna get dismembered or beat. Like, something bad is happening in a shed. All right, guys, I'm gonna play another clip from this recording. They have satellites that are over our head right now that keep constant 24 hour surveillance of everything that goes on. And I've got these photographs in this package that the United States Air Force provided to us of, of where her body was located at the time of the 28th, the day that she disappeared. And it's, it's got a white truck on 43 Canal Road. So you guys, now they're saying that here's a satellite image of your truck on 43 Canal, exactly where we found Casey's body. The problem is, and this is according to his defense attorney, the defense attorney is saying that he believes the detectives took a car that was similar to Kenny's, put it in that area, somehow managed to get a satellite picture, and framed him with it. It's almost one of those things where I, I even might be 50-50, and I will tell you guys, I felt differently yesterday when I first, when I first watched it, I was like, these officers are corrupt, this is trash, but 
you also have to remember that documentaries are meant to be a little bit biased. So right now, I'm 50-50. Either he did do it, and his defense attorney is just really good at being convincing, which is his job, or these officers are just lazy because it takes less energy to frame one person than to go find something else. Because if they have nothing but a picture of his car going through Sonic and camera surveillance, they're gonna use it. It looks really bad in a station if they can't figure out who killed somebody, especially when you have the citizens of your town bugging you, saying there's a kidnapper on the loose, why haven't you gotten him yet? So he continues to ask for a lawyer, saying I don't wanna talk until I get an attorney, which makes sense, like if these officers are threatening you, whether you did it or you didn't do it, you should get an attorney. On tape, you hear them say, after we talk, we will cut her loose, talking about his daughter. Another threat. This is just, just the way that they're doing it is just like, come on guys. They start bugging the daughter saying, what did he do to her? You know, you could be an accessory if you don't start telling us stuff. They're trying to accuse her of helping him, but she clocks in for work. There's cameras at her job, so she has an alibi. He doesn't. So after they start threatening the daughter, that's when he confesses. But like kind of confesses because he doesn't say the words, I killed her. It's more of the investigators talking, saying things like, oh yeah, you did this to her, huh? Yeah, yeah, you, you put a zip tie around her, didn't you? Yeah. When did you put the zip tie around her neck? And he's like, when we were out there. Like he was very vague. Kind of just, you know, he's just sitting there looking into the floor like nothing. So he's kind of just nodding his head like, mm-hmm, with the investigators. But to them, it counts as a confession. And as far as I'm going to the shed, the officers say, we went to the shed to hide from the media. But it was too early for the media to even know. So emotionally, he's just off. Like I said, the investigators are talking more, saying it just got out of hand, didn't it? Yeah, it just got out of hand. You didn't mean for it to happen, right? And he's like, yeah. So later on when they ask him what happened, and he's like, it got out of hand. I didn't mean for it to happen. So essentially mirroring what the officers are saying. So it seems like he has regret, but he's not able to provide any details of the crime. I wanna know what you guys think right now. So he gets transferred to the station and another officer speaks with him. At this point, he has not slept for 36 hours before the arrest. He asked her, did she fight you? He said no. And then they cut to a former boyfriend of hers that was being interviewed. He said, there's no way she would not have fought. She was strong. She definitely would have fought somebody if they tried to hurt her. According to this guy, they had broken up and then she began dating a new guy named Adam. Adam would beat her and she was actually scared of him. And the reason he knew this is because Casey would call the ex-boyfriend saying, that like he would beat me and she was scared of him and he said she was never scared of anybody so this was a huge tell and he would even see bruises on her body officer said that they did investigate adam she had spent the night with some guys before the incident that's what the detective says so sheriff snyder in the interview is saying oh yeah the night before the incident she did spend the night with some guys and the producer's like who like what guys and he's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I won't go there. Whoever it was, 
I'm not gonna get them involved in this mess. They had nothing to do with her disappearance. Nobody's saying that. I guess. He's saying that the car was left there the night before. She went to the party. The party was behind the Exxon gas station. Which would have been around where they found her body. Just saying. So Sheriff Snyder's saying he doesn't know what happened at the party. But Adam and Casey supposedly fought there. The attorney says that he does not believe the officers actually investigated the party. Little side note, Adam denied being interviewed for this documentary. The prosecutor said she was outside at 5.30 a.m. calling her mom, but plenty of people accounted seeing her car the night before all night long. So maybe she did call her mom. Maybe she did. But maybe she left the car there, ran out of gas, figured, well, I have a party to go to anyway, goes to the party, comes back, says, I ran out of gas, and I'm going to the gas station, and then something happens. I don't, oh my god, the timing is just weird. But, like, if she ran out of gas in the morning, why did people see her car during the night? You know? And who's... Who's saying she called her mom? Did the mom say she called her? Or is this something the prosecutors are saying? I am so... You guys, I'm never covering confession tapes. Actually, I probably will, but I'm gonna just be more mindful of this crap. So witnesses, including two nurses, saw her car from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. at least. And if that was the case, if she had disappeared before that, like I said, if she was dead at midnight. Ken was home, sleeping. But what time did she die? I mean, you can usually tell a time of death, can't you? I mean, they'd be able to tell if she, if they found her body at like 8 a.m. and he was in that area at 6.40, she would barely be in rigor mortis, barely. But if she was, the, like, if she was there from midnight, from the party, they would know. Like, it, like there's skin color changes. There's ways to figure it out. What time did she die? That's what I want to know. And you guys, I'm pissed because I don't know what time she dies. They don't tell you what time she dies. They don't mention it. Sheriff Snyder is now saying that, yeah, no, her car was parked all night, but she probably just sat in her car. She Didn't, didn't you just say she went to a party? You just said she went to a party that night, and now you're saying... She sat in her car all night. I don't think this sheriff is that stupid because you're, you're a detective. You're not going to make yourself sound dumb in a documentary. I have a theory that he's like an actor and he's not actually the detective and the documentary is just trying to make a story <sighs> because I am having a hard time believing that this retired sheriff is this dumb to make two arguments that each of them collapse onto each other. That's weird. That's weird. So all they have is this confession that I told you guys about and a videotape from Sonic showing his car from 6.42 to 6.45. After three hours of deliberation, the jury finds him guilty. <sighs> That's all it took for this man to go to prison for murder. That's all it took. That's all it took. So now they had to go to another trial about is he going to serve life in prison or is he getting the death sentence? So it's 12 jurors. One of them decided to give him life. The other 11 said death. Because of that, 
the judge decided, okay, I'm going to give you life in prison. Fast forward. On June 25th, 2009, Arkansas Supreme Court overturned his conviction because, get this guys, the investigators continued their interrogation even after he asked for an attorney. Like I said earlier, to take, take note of that. That's our constitutional right, you guys. So if you're getting questioned whether you did or did not do it, get an attorney. Trust me. Even if you didn't do it and you think it's going to make you sound suspicious, just get one. Because some officers play dirty. Not all of them. Some officers play dirty. I'm not getting into politics. Not on this episode, guys. So he does get a new trial, but his attorney... I don't know if this was the attorney in the documentary or if it was a different one. I think it was, this is a different one. Says, dude, take a plea bargain. (laughs) Dude, I'm sure he didn't say dude. He says, take a plea bargain and then you will only spend seven years in prison. Just take the plea, just take the plea. Sounds lazy is what it sounds like. Attorneys that are like, take a plea bargain, take a, you're not an attorney. What are you doing? You're just like, okay, I give up. Come on, if you really don't believe that your client did it, Unless they just think the jurors are gonna think he did it no matter what. I don't know. On June 18th, 2014, he takes the plea to kidnapping and second-degree murder, and he gets 40, not seven, 40 years with the possibility of parole. After all these years, he says he does not blame Mr. and Mrs. Crowder. Nobody should have to bury their child. But he definitely did not do it. If the documentary is not playing with me, If the documentary is not playing with our feelings and everything they say is accurate, then Adam did it. I don't think, you guys, I really don't think Kenneth did it. But I'm very, you know me, the last confession tape, I didn't think those guys did it. I still don't think those guys did it. I'll have to have Jen watch this episode and let me know what she thinks. Yeah, guys, um, give us five stars wherever you are listening. And if you have not already, make sure you check out the Patreon at the $5 level. You get two bonus episodes, which is six total. At the $7 level, you get those two bonus episodes plus our regular feed ad-free. And at the $12 level, you get all of that plus you get to not only listen to me tell the story, you get to watch me tell the story. Other than that, guys, thank you for consuming crime with me today. And you'll hear me next week.